fraudulent historian who makes his living conning the victims of mass shootings returns home to save the young daughter of the woman he loves, taking her on a roadshow into the worn-out heart of America, one step ahead of what's after him. Kate Lebo's quick description of Miller Kane, Sam Ligon's ongoing novel, which will be presented in installments each week, first in The Inlander, then on Spokane Public Radio. Right now, we're at the Washington Cracker Building for the September 20th rollout of the novel. In this half hour, we'll hear three parts of the book. First, author Sam Ligon reads the opening. Then, we'll hear prominent writers in Spokane deliver a section of a proposed history textbook Miller is writing. Part three will be even later in the book when Miller, in frustration, creates a list how to survive a massacre. The readers in order are Sam Ligon, Tony Flynn, Melissa Huggins, Lena Crow, Kate Lebo, Chelsea Martin, Laura Reed, and Sean Bestel. First, Sam. So it's called Miller Kane, A True and Exact History. Chapter one, part one. Miller Kane was six days into the Rosedale Massacre when Hefner slid into the Legion Hall during an afternoon animal session. Miller didn't recognize him at first, was focused on calming a howling beagle he just settled into a survivor's lap. But the rage vibe was unmistakable, a disruption in the air over all the animal distraction, even as Hefner slouched and slunk and tried to keep himself small as he looked for a seat, finally taking a broken office chair by the coffee urns in back. It never would have occurred to Miller that a survivor from Cumberland would show up in Texas, a thousand miles away, at a completely different massacre. Maybe the man was just disturbed. Weren't they all? Maybe his hurt came off as hatred. Miller had seen that before. But he couldn't help wondering, just for a second, if the man might be another shooter, fresh on the scene to finish them all. He didn't want to think that. Connie Lopez seemed to know something was off with the dude, too, keeping an eye on him from her table in the center of the barroom as she chopped cilantro for chili. Eight days after the shooting, this was an intimate group. People came and went, grieved at their own pace, sought comfort or outlets in ways you couldn't anticipate. Miller certainly didn't know every person in town, and this was a small enough massacre that there hadn't been many out-of-town scammers, not that this guy fit the profile of a parasite. The lights were low for calm in the Legion Hall. The survivors were focused on their animals. Miller tiptoed out the front door to get the last two dogs, a chihuahua mix and an ancient golden. He walked back in and handed their leads to Connie's cousin, Wade, who distributed the animals. These were good people in Rosedale, like everywhere. Most of the dogs and cats here, on loan from the Humane Society, would find new homes today. Miller could feel the dude in back watching him, but he wasn't going to show discomfort or acknowledgement, not yet. Maybe the man just needed to settle in. Connie said, I need your help over here, Miller. She handed him a cutting board and four onions. The survivors were scattered around the room on chairs and yoga mats, holding animals, whispering, putting faces against fur. Miller peeled and chopped onions. Elvin Duchamp handed his cat to the rage dude, who took it, a good sign. Miller was watching it all without looking directly at them. Too big, Connie said about the onions. Cut them in half again. At every massacre, people shed. Kidneys and blood and casseroles and stuffed animals and real animals and money and cars. 
A rich dude in Dallas had set up a scholarship fund this morning for the Rosedale kids who'd survived. Connie Lopez gave more than anyone. She'd lost a husband, a son, and her mother, but she'd been baking and cooking for days, feeding the others in the hall where they'd set up shop for the healing or the non-healing, whatever it was they were doing, a place for them to be together. This was not uncommon, people feeding each other. But most of these folks had been here a week now, moved in like an occupying army. Connie worked at a stainless steel table relocated from the kitchen to the center of the bar room so that others could handle food with her. She'd roll dough for pie, mix dough for tortillas, talking sometimes, listening sometimes, shutting down, waking up, but always working. She'd chop vegetables and fruit and meat, pour sugar and add fat, instructing her helpers, almost everyone in this town, to keep stirring, to not handle the pie dough too much, to have another brownie, more pozole, keeping herself and all of them alive, it seemed, just as long as they could stay together and keep cooking and baking and eating. I don't like that guy, Connie whispered over the rain and flute sounds creaking out of the ancient PA system. Miller wasn't going to look at him. I told Wade to get him out of here at the slightest, Connie said. An older woman, Ruth Dozier, lowered herself to the floor and wrapped her arms around the golden Wade had placed before her. The dog looked at Miller, seemed embarrassed, guilty, then squatted and started to pee. Uh-oh, Miller said, walking toward them. It's okay, Ruth said. She's not hurting anyone. I know, Miller said. I'll just get you a towel. He walked behind the bar and into the kitchen, still ignoring the stranger. The Golden was probably overwhelmed. They all were. Miller had been on the road three years now, from Ravenswood to Marble Mountain, Springfield to Scarborough, Whiskey Flats to Cumberland, in circles it sometimes seemed, all over the country. He went wherever the work was, which was everywhere, wherever he thought he could do the most good and make the most money. And while he didn't know how much good he'd done exactly, or how you could even measure such a thing, he did know he'd made people's lives better, if only for a little while, because they told him so, thanked him with words and food and money and booze. Sometimes he wondered how much gratitude he deserved, how much of anything anyone deserved, but he never came up with an answer. The money seemed to feed itself, 500 becoming 5,000, becoming 10,000, becoming 100,000, becoming more than he'd ever need, though need was as hard to measure as deserve. There were all kinds of things a person needed, love and food and shelter and rest, but how much food? How much love? How much shelter? How about a motorhome or a cabin in the Cascades? How about candy and gum for everyone, liquor and books and ponies and affordable health care? How about a new vaccine for a new disease? How about doing whatever you wanted whenever you wanted to do it? His phone buzzed, but he didn't answer. There were no clean towels in the kitchen or in the office. The aprons were all dirty, too. He grabbed a roll of paper towels and walked it back to the bar room, past the stranger, who was turned to watch him, who Miller still ignored, but who said Miller's name now quietly at first, Kane, then a little louder, hey, Kane. Miller didn't stop. Okay, so the man knew him. Lots of people knew him. Miller turned to look at the man, but the lights were low. And then Miller recognized him. Hefner, the ass from Cumberland, looking for problems when his problems should have kept him home. Miller held up the paper towels, meaning, wait a second, I'm busy. Hefner held up his cat, meaning, okay, I'll be right here, waiting. 
He was wearing shorts and a t-shirt and didn't have a bag with him or any other way to conceal a weapon. Maybe he had something outside, but nothing here now. Wade stood by Connie's table, watching everything with his arms across his chest. Miller helped Ruth clean up after her dog. Connie rolled her garbage can over so that Miller could fill it with wet paper towels. He lifted the bag out of the can, tied it, and walked toward the bar and kitchen door toward Hefner's seat by the coffee station. Most people were still in private spaces with their animals. Hefner had his cat against his chest. Surprised to see you here, Jimmy, Miller said to him, crouching, but glad. I imagine you've got a lot to offer these folks. Oh, please, Miller said, spare me the bullshit. Miller could hear the cat purring, could smell something rotten coming off of Hefner. I'm here for my money, he said. Miller couldn't remember any money coming from Hefner. They certainly hadn't done a spiritual profile, though toward the end, Hefner had seemed to be everywhere demanding one, becoming more and more difficult to put off. Maybe there'd been a donation Miller wasn't aware of? He hefted the garbage bag, hoping Wade was still watching. Why don't we talk out front in a few minutes, Miller said. Give these folks some space with their animals. Sure, Hefner said, the rotten smell rising off him. Sounds swell. Miller walked away, hoping he wasn't about to get shot in the back. Outside, he swung the garbage bag into the dumpster, took a deep breath, and another. The air was sticky and still. His phone buzzed again in his pocket. He pulled it out as the back door swung open. Skagit County Jail, the caller ID read. So Lizzie was in trouble. No surprise there, but jail? Hefner walked toward Miller. I want my money, he said, the cat against his chest. Wade followed, watching. It's okay, Wade, Miller said, hoping Wade wouldn't leave. Yeah, Wade, Hefner said, we're fine here. Take it easy, Miller said to Hefner. Only way I know, Hefner said. Wade stood by the back door watching. 1,500 for me, Hefner said, 15 for Sully, six grand for Mrs. Aiello, nine for Tim and Marcy. You're collecting for everyone, Miller said. Not even close, Hefner said. You think I do this for money, Miller said, and Hefner said, yep. And Miller said, I take what people give me to help other people. Sure you do, Hefner said. Just give me my goddamn money. The cat yelped, twisting in his grasp. Wade stepped forward. Give me that cat, Wade said, sir. Miller's phone buzzed in his pocket. Hefner glared at Miller, working his jaw. $18,000, he said. That's a lot of money, Miller said. I'd be just as happy to take a piece of you, Hefner said. Wade inched forward. He had 100 pounds on Hefner, but hurting him would only make things worse, probably. It's okay, Miller said to Wade. Give him the cat, he said to Hefner. I'll get you some money, whatever might help. Whatever might help, Hefner said. Nothing will help. Just give me what you owe me. And Wade said, I'll take that cat now, sir. Hefner pulled the cat closer, twisting as it yowled. Now, Wade said. No, man, Hefner said, neither of you. He went for something in his back pocket or the waistband of his jeans. Wade popped him with a right to the jaw. The sounds of bones crunching and crackling. The rotten smell rising up more rotten. Hefner crumpled and the cat sprang free. Okay, so that's the end of section one. And now I'm going to invite other writers up. Thank you. The other, uh, the other thing that Miller does, aside from working the massacre circuit, he used to be a high school history teacher in Spokane. 
Um, he quit that job. But while he was doing that job, he also contributed to history textbooks, high school history textbooks. He had a three-book contract. And the kind of things he contributed were like uh, set-aside capsule biographies of Daniel Boone to make the book more interesting. He wrote the cool biographies. And he's doing that. He's been asked to do that. His third book is, is, uh, is an 11th grade text where he's been asked to write a section called American Hero or Villain. Um, and he's, it's, you know, George Washington, hero or villain? And he writes a blurb about him. And Miller's been blowing this off because he's been on the massacre circuit. He's now going off the massacre circuit to get this kid and help this kid. And he's decided he's going to go ahead and do this book. His editor's name is George. He's written to the editor, and the editor's like, yeah, do it, man. Let's, let's go. So Miller's starting to write, and he writes his first hero and her villain. So when Sean starts talking to George, he's talking to Miller's editor. And this is the first hero villain. America, her, him, them, itself. First of all, and for starters, him, her, them, its story is not just about steel and Chryslers and pilgrims and heroin and fishing and lynching and baseball and jazz and buffaloes and Indians and cowboys and missionaries and guns and rebellion and cheese whiz and porn, because it's also about robber barons and pioneers, Mormons and slavery, immigrants and genocide, preachers and drunks. We will have better amusement parks than everyone, yes, but also more massacres, countless massacres, though some will remember especially, like Boston, My Lai, Mountain Meadows, Wounded Knee, Las Vegas, Columbine, Sand Creek, Sandy Hook. We'll become shopkeepers and lawyers, doctors and clerks, captains of industry and career criminals. Work will give our lives meaning and grind us into dust. We'll reward ingenuity. Weight will be gained and lost and regained. We'll overcome addictions and succumb to them again. We'll be oversexed and celibate, male and female, neither and both. What's rightfully ours we will take, and what's free for the taking we will take. We'll take anything we can get our hands on, but we'll give too, often while we're taking. We'll cherish our rights. We'll love hamburgers and whiskey and Babe Ruth and Jesse James and Flannery O'Connor and Sandra Day O'Connor and Martin Luther King and Buffalo Bill, but we'll also hate them. We'll be socially mobile, some of us, and trapped by the circumstances of our birth, some of us. We'll have black belts and Bible belts. We'll handle snakes, shun cards, play tennis, and stab each other in juke joints. Clowns and elephants will be the pegs on which the circus is hung, P.T. Barnum will tell us, but his most famous elephant, Jumbo, will be struck and killed by a train in Ontario. How can such a thing be possible, we'll wonder. A Sudanese elephant captured and sold to an Italian, then a German, imported to Paris, then London, bought by Barnum, beloved by Americans, only to be killed in Canada. Superheroes will become more real to us than anything except money. We'll improve and we'll backslide. We'll develop vaccines, then fear them. We will never admit defeat. We will kill and kill and kill and kill. Each other, people of color, people not of color, people like us and not like us, and we'll be helpless before such killing. We'll kill in churches and bars and post offices and college classrooms and malls and elementary schools. At home, at work, at night, in grocery stores, movie theaters, concert halls, and dance clubs, in the city, in the suburbs, in tiny towns, in cars, in bed, wherever we happen to be, we'll stalk and kill, and we'll kill randomly. 
We'll kill our bosses and coworkers and lovers and ex-wives and parents and children. We will kill strangers. We will kill people we hate, people we love, people we used to love but now hate. We'll mourn and we'll pray over our killing. We'll believe we believe in freedom more than anyone else, even knowing our history of slavery. We'll grow fatter and fatter and incredibly obsessively fit. We'll wonder if these pants, this dress, this outfit makes our ass look big. We'll hate kings and queens and dukes and governments and love actors and athletes and pop stars and rich people who we will also hate. We will invest in land and gold, the long con and short. We'll invent oil. We'll invent the telephone, democracy, three martini lunches, the assembly line, prayer meetings, the internet, almost everything else except fireworks, invented by the Chinese, and pizza and pasta, also invented by the Chinese. Lesson, the Chinese will invent whatever we don't. Depending on where we shop, and we'll know if we're in the right place, soap will cost 24 cents a bar or $24. That's what we mean by freedom and no one can tell us otherwise, and no one can stop us, and no one can keep us down. Traffic, though, will become a nightmare. And what are we supposed to look forward to once the land's all settled and Buffalo Bill's defunct and we don't build bridges or dams anymore or go to space or anywhere else except unending war? Which is fine for the present, but just what is the significance of the frontier in American history when there is no frontier left? What are we supposed to conquer now, cancer? And when did chefs become heroes? If we're really honest with ourselves, we'll say that our nation's wealth was built on slavery and taking everything we could get our hands on. We've always been a nation of laws, yes, but also a nation of taking, of lawlessness even, a nation of sin and salvation, a nation of second chances, fresh starts, long prison sentences, churches and taverns and melting pots and buffets. It makes sense, maybe, that black elk liked Queen Victoria when he was with Buffalo Bill's Wild West, because Queen Victoria said to him, all over the world I have seen all kinds of people, but today I have seen the best looking people I know. She meant Black Elk and his friends. It's pretty much impossible not to like someone who thinks you're the best looking person in the world, even if her name will later become synonymous with sexual repression. But it wasn't just that. It's that she wasn't American. That's what was so likable, probably, to this Native American. If you belonged to me, she said, I would not let them take you around in a show like this. But Black Elk did not belong to her, and she probably had no idea how horrible she sounded saying such a thing. The next time he saw her at her jubilee, Black Elk noticed Grandmother England's dress was all shining, and her hat was all shining, and her wagon was all shining, and so were the horses. She looked like a fire coming. And then Buffalo Bill left him and several of his friends in England for years, not on purpose, but still. And then Buffalo Bill went back for him and brought him home to America. George, insert that image here of all those stampeding Buffalo with Buffalo Bill's head in a circle right there in the middle of the foremost craziest eyed Buffalo and the words, I'm coming at the bottom. <laughs> George also, Okay, so I've run out of time here and I've run off the rails, but this is just a warm-up is all anyway, just a way to get thinking about this whole American hero-villain project. I realize this tone is not quite what you're looking for, but here's the thing, George. Here's what I want you and all the kids to know the most. If you've never driven up Chuckanut Drive or along the Blue Ridge or across the Concomagus or down the Pacific Coast Highway, do yourself a favor and drive one of those beautiful drives right now. 
I mean this instant, man. America is a lot more than just massacres, you know. Okay, now we're going to go to part three. And the name of that hero villain is America, her, him, them, itself. The first hero villain is America. So the editor responds, is like, uh, this isn't really what I'm looking for. And Miller keeps sending that kind of shit. Just keeps, and the editor's like, uh. And later, now we're going to read, um, as late in the book as I am right now, which is about January for, for the newspaper. Um, and he's pissed at the editor, George, and he writes him a list called How to Survive a Massacre. Because George has said, maybe you should write something else. So this is what Miller writes. How to Survive a Massacre. One, don't be born in America. Two, don't be born in Norway, Australia, Egypt, France, China, Somalia, Spain, the West Bank, the Ukraine, the Belgian Congo. Three, don't be born. Four, if you must be born, acquire a handgun you're comfortable with and learn how to use it. Make friends with it. Make love with it under your bed or pillow or inside the special drawer where you keep your other love-making tools. Then get dressed and put your gun back on. Five, conceal it. Open carry it. Six, parade around in the living room with it strapped to your person. Pull the kitchen curtain aside and look outdoors. Accept the awesome responsibility of staying inside with your gun strapped to your person until you die and the cats feast upon your remains. Seven, hide where the killers could never find you. In a bulletproof room, for example, behind a secret panel no one else knows about. Eight, be the kind of person no one would ever dream of shooting, in the face or elsewhere. Nine, run for high office on the Second Amendment, promising free guns for children and nuns and the criminally insane. Be showered with campaign contributions, then ban assault weapons immediately upon election. Ten, prepare to be assassinated, but don't be assassinated. Eleven, though hard to believe, body counts will go down if killers have to massacre with knives or clubs or garrets or pikes or boomerangs or swords or brass knuckles or slingshots, and your constituents, most of them, will be grateful, though there won't be any money for your re-election campaign. Twelve, before, during, and after holding office, surround yourself with secret service agents ready to be massacred in your stead. Thirteen, get shot in the face by your hunting buddy and die. Fourteen, shoot your hunting buddy in the face and spend the rest of your life in prison. Fifteen, decide to write comic books. Isn't that where the money is? Not that you're a sellout. Then realize comic books are stupid, though really, really hard to write and beautiful in their way with lasting literary value. Or maybe they're just comic books and every superhero is the same superhero, only with different costumes. Die of sadness. Sixteen, become a movie star or a porn star or a baseball star. Movie stars and porn stars and baseball stars are almost never massacred. 17. Cultivate a will to live so powerful that when you do get shot in the face, you will not succumb to death. 18. Once the shooting starts, hide behind others. 19. Shape shift, becoming a desk, a globe, a potted plant. 20. Retrofit your motorhome with a hyperspace engine that will allow you to travel away from massacres at warp speed. 21, pray constantly in every direction. 22, practice the kind of mindfulness that puts you into a coma. 23, once in a coma, stay there the rest of your life. Coma victims are almost never massacred. 24, if you see something, don't say anything, run. 
25, pass legislation requiring everyone except the security forces here for our safety to be naked all the time, except after we make love when we conceal carry ourselves around the living room. 26, if your son's the shooter, for God's sake, don't run into the building to try to stop him. The cops have no idea who you are or what you're doing, and they'll blow your head off. 27. Stop eating chicken and beef and pork and fish and rabbit and squirrel and buffalo and possum. Stop eating radishes and wheat and dairy and fruit and grass and dirt and fiber. Only eat cinnamon. 28. If you're not part of the problem, you're part of the solution, which means if you're not part of the massacre, you won't get shot in the face. 29. Develop a way to determine who will be a killer, then develop a treatment plan to make him a spiritual healer instead with lots of adoring followers. 30. Refuse to be a victim. 31. If you have a child, be with the child. Make bread with the child, play Barbies with the child, and ride horses, and read pioneer stories, but don't ever let him, her, them, it out of the house. 32. Lobby for a constitutional convention to make massacres unconstitutional. 33. Fund miscreant centers and killer centers so killers and miscreants have places to go and things to do other than massacring, such as macrame and smoking and cricket and high colonics and coffee drinking and bocce and duplicate bridge and stamp collecting. 34. If you're not sure if someone is about to massacre you, shoot them in the face first, saving yourself and the people around you who are too irresponsible to conceal carry. 35. Never offend a cop. 36, never go outside. 37, if you must go outside, never go where a massacre is happening. 38, make more effort to make the world better and be outraged with people who aren't even trying. They're the ones who should be killed, not you. 39, pass zero tolerance policies regarding bullying, fat shaming, slut shaming, heretic shaming. 40, require rich people and poor people to switch places becoming each other's butlers and gardeners and secretaries and cooks and maids and prostitutes and drug mules and lepers and minions and serfs, then switch them back again without warning. 41, be more sex positive, more massacre negative. 42, swaddle yourself in invisible safety shields. 43, Prohibit bad things from happening to good people and good things from happening to bad people and anything from happening to everyone else. 44. Smear liver and onions all over the guns strapped to your person and invite the cats in the neighborhood to consider your remains. 45. Be generous with your thoughts and prayers. 46. But look for massacres everywhere. 47. And deliver us from evil. 48. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the one nation under God. 49, and the glory. Don't forget the glory. 50, this last one, George, I'll leave for you. Maybe you can lead me to a hero villain who did something to stop the slaughter. I don't mean regarding individual massacres. I mean someone who took on the contagion. Have we ever had an American massacre doctor? What's that? The rollout party for Miller Kane, A True and Exact History by Sam Ligon. In addition to Sam, we heard Tony Flynn, Melissa Huggins, Lena Crow, Kate Lebo, Chelsea Martin, Laura Reed, and Sean Vestal. Episodes of Miller Kane will continue for about a year. First each week in the Inlander, then following on Spokane Public Radio every Thursdays on the Northwest Arts Review, 1230 on KPBX and 330 on 
on KSFC. I'm Vern Windham.